Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia, and I'm also currently a Danish Diabetes and Endocrine Academy visiting professor at the University of Copenhagen. The idea behind Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So exercise physiology, exercise metabolism, and exercise and health. And what I want you to do is to get your information from the research experts in exercise rather than from influencers. So there's all sorts of people, especially on social media, talking about exercise, but they're not research experts. This, this way you've got someone who's a researcher. So I've been a 30-year researcher in exercise physiology, uh, reached full professor. I'm interviewing other research experts in exercise. And indeed, today I bring to you Dr. Orla O'Sullivan from the TGASC Food Research Center in Ireland, who's an absolute expert on the gut microbiota. So what we talked about today was the gut microbiota diversity and the effect of exercise and diet. This was a really nice addition to the discussion I had with Ed Chambers a few weeks ago on the gut microbiota and exercise. Um, all it brings a different sort of angle to it. Um, I found it very interesting talking about the effect of different sports, such as rugby and cricket, on gut microbiota diversity. Also talking about diet and other factors. I found it really interesting. I think you will too, so stick around. Hi, Orla. Thanks for coming on. That looks like a nice background. Is that is that looking out your window, is it? Oh, unfortunately not. I'm looking out my window at torrential rain at the moment, uh, August oh, in Ireland. Okay. Uh, no, mm. uh, this is, so I, I work in Chagask, which is the Irish uh, Food and Dairy Research Agency. So this is our Irish 40 Shades of Green, um, Ooh, which nice. we have unfortunately haven't seen blue skies in Ireland, I think, since 2022 at this point. Uh, we've oh, had a wow. tough summer. A tough summer. Okay, Wow. Actually, yeah, a couple of people have asked. So I, I usually had the background from where I live in Melbourne, and now I've got the background about 50 metres from where we live in Copenhagen. So that's like the lakes. So the Danish nice. flag, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So it's great to have you on. Thanks for coming on. And people may have noticed if they looked a few podcasts ago that I had Edward um, Chambers on talking about gut microbiota and exercise. So so hopefully people have had a look at this and then uh, that one, and then this will be like a follow-up. Why don't you give us a bit of a quick, um, you know, explanation of how your work sort of differs a bit? Because we talked about that and this like, oh, you know, it's going to be some overlap. Yeah, yeah I think um, I was listening to Edward's uh, podcast the other day and like, I think the focus from Edward was very much on short chain fatty acids, which is so important when you're looking at an athlete gut and we can kind of talk about that. Um, as you go on, I get the way our difference is that we're looking at the gut microbiome as a whole and how the profile of the gut microbiome changes in different sports and with training programs, with traveling athletes. And we're also looking at the metabolome as a whole. And I guess our work is probably 90% focused on athletes rather than exercise, if that makes sense. So we're looking mm. at an actual mm. athletic population rather than the, the general population to like we have looked at yeah we have looked at the, the what we would deem couch potatoes as well but um mm. we can get to that as we go you've got cricketers and rugby players and things like that so yeah we can talk about that now the other thing i noticed is you're a computational biologist what what is a computational biologist and also i guess how did you my feeling i don't, I don't actually know and you'll tell us is that you didn't start off looking at sport and things. You you started off more, you know, specifically the gut microbiota and then maybe applied it later on. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, my degree is in biochemistry. Um, 
which I've kind of gone fairly far distance from now. Um, and I did my PhD in bioinformatics. Started that in 2000. And so when I did my PhD, I did it in developmental bioinformatics. So developing new software tools, looking at um, how to align sequences of DNA so you could tell whether they were similar or not. Um, and as I progressed through my PhD, I kind of missed the the questions or the science applying. I miss the applied nature of science, I suppose. I, I, you know, developing new software tools was great and I enjoyed it, but I actually missed answering questions. So once I did my PhD, I moved more towards applied bioinformatics, which is kind of using other people's software to, to ask biological questions, which is where bio, uh, computational biology came in. But when I started my PhD when I finished it the word the, the microbiome was barely a concept so I hadn't really come into um full fruition yet so okay. I guess leaving my PhD I didn't even know that a role in looking at profiling the gut microbiome could exist and and then mm -hmm. I started working in Chagas who had very close links with APC Microbiome Ireland which is a microbiome research centre and that's how I kind of segued into looking at the microbiome. Okay. Um, and, and, you, and you do this, you mentioned sequencing, so maybe just explain a little bit about what sequencing is. So, so you're not just looking, like you mentioned, the short chain fatty acids, you're kind of looking at the whole... Um, yeah, so we're looking at the, I guess, the entire DNA. So like Edward explained really well what the microbiome is. So it's a collection of microbes that live in and on and not just in your gut, but on every surface of the human body in, and every environment in the world has its own unique microbiome. And what the, you know, microbiomes are not just bacteria, which is a common misnomer, like it's made up of archaea, fungi, viruses, protozoa, depending on what environment you have in, you'll have different collections of each one. And like each person's gut microbiome is as unique as their fingerprint, which is what makes studying it and what makes from a computational perspective makes it so challenging and so fascinating and so rewarding. And this is where you get like, turn into nerdy science just because that's where that's where the challenge lies and that what makes it exciting and makes us come to work every day you know mm -hmm. so um we're very lucky in Chagas in that we have on-site sequencing facilities um so we do all our own DNA sequencing and that field in itself has evolved so rapidly over the last 20 years so even when we first started looking at the microbiome you were looking at Sanger sequencing and what that would have done would have sequenced, you would have gotten like, you know, hundreds of sequence reads, so hundreds of DNA reads from a sample. Mm -hmm. And now we're at the point where we're getting millions of sequence reads from each sample. So like the evolution mm -hmm. over 20 years has been phenomenal. And you've Even had to... this, yeah. Yeah, you've had the I same corresponding. Well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, it's so, like I can remember when I was doing my PhD, um, a girl, a colleague that was doing her PhD at the same time was her entire PhD was sequencing a bifidobacterium genome. And she had <clears throat> what we would say 3x coverage. So basically you'd sequence the genome three times and that was her PhD. Now mm. you'd sequence that genome a thousand times, thousand x coverage, and it would be 
a single line in your PhD thesis, not not a, no. an entire PhD thesis. So the evolution of sequencing, the associated data analysis tools, the associated computational power has mm. been phenomenal over the last 20 years. That's true. Computers 20 years ago, even if they could have measured all those different sequences, they wouldn't have been able to do the computational stuff probably. That's it. And the time, days. months, months you would be looking at, you know. Right. Okay. And just to clarify, so you're saying DNA. So, so I guess, so what you're doing there is you're sequencing the DNA. So you're finding all the different, each different cell type has its own DNA. Yeah, and, and that's what and that's what you're doing. So you're able to find all the different cell types by looking at the DNA. Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on what type of sequencing you're doing. So when the, we started looking at profiling the microbiome, when people started profiling the microbiome, you would target a certain gene. So um, it was called amplicon sequencing. So you'd take DNA primers for a specific gene that was ubiquitous across all bacteria. So the 16S ribosomal RNA gene was the one that was most commonly used. Um, and so you'd sequence that, but all of the information you'd get back from that type of sequencing was what, what bacteria are there? And only bacteria because 16S genes. You'd, some archaeobacteria would have it as well, but you wouldn't get fungal populations or eukaryotes or protozoa. Mm -hmm. And because of the, I guess, the homology between 16S RNA genes, you couldn't distinguish past genus level. When it came to bacteria so you'd get the population profile to genus level and that would be it um, and as techniques evolved so now i guess the most popular you could do the same sorry with uh, fungi genes by looking at the its genes um mm. but now sequencing has evolved into what is most commonly known as shotgun sequencing so shotgun metagenomic sequencing which as you said, looks at the entire genome of each bacteria, of each microbe, and you can get a profile of not only the 16S genes, but also every other gene in the genome. So you're not only being able to look down to genus level, you can now get to species, sometimes strain level, depending on the microbe you're looking at, but also the information you're getting back at this point is how can these microbes potentially function? So it'll give you the functional genes in that. It'll give you the biosolid hydrolase. It'll give you the, you know, the, all of the, the entire gene profile, but it can't tell you whether those genes are switched on or off. It just tells you whether they're present or not. So it's just a potential, okay. functional potential of the microbiome. Now I'm getting a bit geeky here on this, uh, the DNA side of things. What about, have they thought to even go to the epigenetic side of things? Is there epigenetic? So just, to, um, maybe we'll just explain a little bit. So. <clears throat> People may have heard of epigenetics. So, you know, we always think about DNA is passed on to the offspring and then that determines what happens. But we now know that there's even epigenetics. So even though the DNA, which is passed on the offspring, is not changed, that the markers on top of the DNA, which can, can be passed on and can then affect. So there's been a lot of interest in, like, for example, during your lifetime, can you affect your, your likelihood of genes turning off and on? by things that you do during your lifetime. So your diet, yeah. your exercise, and that's more epigenetic. If they started to think about epigenetics with, so something you ate or something you did, well, not one meal, but your diet, your exercise, whatever you did as a child, can that then have epigenetic effects on your microbiome? Do you I'm just, yeah, I'm sure it can. It's not something that we look at in our research area, but I definitely, and I guess what we need to do is perfect the art of the profiling first and then move on to different techniques. So yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, what we're trying to do a lot is moving from the metagenome to the transcriptome to see what's turned on and what's off mm -hmm. the proteome, the metabolome, but epigenetics is definitely the next step in, in this, you know. Yep. Yep. All right. So yeah, just again for people. So so DNA gets converted to messenger RNA to protein. So when you talk yeah. about the transcriptome, that's the messenger RNA, the proteome is the protein. So, all right. So some of these questions I'm going to ask you are going to be similar to what Ed, Ed and I talked about. But just some of the things that I try and get my head around. So how how much does diet actually affect the microbiome? And how complicated, because I started realizing talking with Ed, it's just really complicated. So you might say, oh, I just ate up you know, 200 grams of chocolate. I probably screwed up my microbiome. But there's 2,000 species or, or probably more, yeah. right? You know, some are going to go up, some are going to go down. Like, how do you even, like, get your head around that? Like a bad, a so-called bad diet. It's probably going to increase some good microbiome. And what is a good and bad bacteria anyway? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, I get, as it, And I think Edward uh, alluded to this as well. We like the microbiome field is, is in its relative infancy to compared to other fields of science. And at the moment, a lot of what we're doing is observational studies and, you know, it's correlations, it's observations, causality is coming now and looking at, you know, and, and that end of it. But what we, while we don't know exactly what makes up a healthy microbiome, one of the things that we do know is diversity is key. So the more diverse, the more different mm -hmm. types of microbes you have in your gut microbiome, the healthier it is. And the reason for this is like, so the more diverse, the more different types of microbes you have, the more different types of functions that microbiome profile can perform. So if you have only 10 microbes, then you'll only have the function of those 10. Whereas if you go up to the thousand, then you'll have all of those functions. And we kind of, you know, I do, we do a lot of school visits here going out to primary schools. And, and we kind of say, in order to fuel that diversity, you need to give those microbes diverse fuel. So if you were only ever to eat apples, okay, apples are healthy, but all you need in your gut microbiome then is the microbes that are going to break down those apples. So you'll have very little diversity and then your body can't function because you're losing the functions of those. So it's that you're not getting a full immune profile, a few hormones. So you ask how, what's the role of diet? I think diet is the key controller of your microbiome. Like, so diversity in your diet is what's going to drive a healthy microbiome. We know that every aspect of modern lifestyle will affect your microbiome from the environment you live in, the air you breathe, your sleep pattern, the medications that you take, good and bad. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess in recent years, and what we've been working on is the role of fitness and exercise in, in shaping this microbiome. And again, unlike the human genome, we can change our microbiome for the detriment, for the better. And that's what makes it so interesting to work on as well. Mm -hmm. So, and how long do you have a feel for how long it takes? Because, oh, I, again, and, and it, it would yeah. that as well, it's in its infancy. But, you know, like if you went from having this really good mixed diet and, you know, lots of different things, so you've got all these different microbiota, um, microbiota, you know, bacteria, fungi, whatever, to deal with that. And then you suddenly just go on this really you know, strict diet and all you're eating is, you know, whatever the latest fab thing is. How long does it actually take to change these things, you know? 
Yeah, and again, that this is some somewhat controversial because it and I like I when I was listening to Edward's podcast back, um, he mentioned Paula Tube's work with the elderly population, and I actually did my postdoctoral research on that elderly project. It was called Eldermest. We had five hundred mm-hmm. elderly subjects, and one of the fascinating things that we were able to look at there is look at elderly people as they transitioned into care homes, so their diet drastically changed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about the the rest of the world, but um diets in care homes in Ireland wouldn't be great you know they'd be very uh strict and not healthy not but not fiber rich but it took about six weeks for their for the effects to be seen on the microbiome from their diet Mm. which was a long time so I guess for you know our mindset then was it'll take six weeks to to change but now there's been a lot of studies and 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 Edward mentioned one of the pivotal ones that have shown within 24 hours you can affect a change and it's not necessarily a change in the profile of your microbes it's more the profile of the metabolites that they're producing Oh. which is more important than what's there is what are they how are they working and we oh, do a lot of work with uh imperial college london where you can look at the you know the impact of the diet over 24 hours and we think it's actually faster than what we initially thought but i guess why it's been so hard to look at causality in the microbiome is it's very challenging to to use humans as your experimental method because humans aren't all the same we all feed ourselves differently and when we're looking yeah and I get when we're looking at the gut microbiome we're looking at it from a fecal sample and the fecal sample is coming from the large intestine when in fact an awful lot of the functions of the microbiome is happening in the small intestine which is a level up and to get small intestinal samples is not possible from a human on a large scale like imperial college london do great work where they they can put tubes into down the digestive tract and collect samples from different um, areas of the the small intestine you know of the digestive tract including the small intestine but the end number of those will never be to a large scale you can get some samples where you have ileostomy patients but ileostomy patients are unwell to begin with so that's a caveat that you're looking at there and then edward mentioned this um swallowable pill that's been that's in Mm -hmm. development that can you swallow it and it'll take samples along the digestive tract so it's the fact that you know you can work all you want with germ-free mouse models germ-free rat models but whether it translates well into humans is is Mm -hmm. the big issue there and we have you know ex vivo models that we have and where we're trying to mimic the actions of the small intestine but again humans are unique and and very complex and that's where our challenges are in the microbiome field and you could also look at i was thinking the small intestine you can also look at the mouth of course so the mouth has its own bacteria and you know people interested in exercise and sport would know about people uh, how nitrate gets converted to nitrite in the mouth yep. and how mouthwash can wipe that out and whatever. Have you guys looked, have many people looked at the mouth and and I guess what's, I, I would have thought what's produced in the mouth would get kind of wiped out in the gut, uh, in the um, stomach because of the pH? Yeah, it's doing? the pH difference. And what the, I guess a lot of the microbes in the gut are responsible for dental hygiene for, you know, the, the there's a lot of propionibacteria mm-hmm. in, in your mouth that will, and, and dental carries and um well what 
is interesting is what we would often study from saliva samples is like their levels of cortisol and so the, your stress response to events and that would be linked then to the gut microbiome and a lot of um we have um just begun two large uh, European wide projects where we're going to look at breath samples and that's with Imperial College London as well to look at the you know how the the metabolites in the breath are affecting being affected by dietary changes and True. Actually, because you mentioned the mouth there and you mentioned bacteria in the mouth a bit, I'm going to give a, there's a, there's a person who's a bit of a fan of the podcast, Greta, who um, keeps talking about uh, the mouth and gum disease can affect, you know, who knows, performance, whatever. So she actually sent something through a perio specialist I spoke to says reducing mouth bacteria reduces risk of upper respiratory tract infections. I'm not saying you necessarily know this, but research wasn't carried out specifically on athletes and exercises. We find P. gingivalis, a bacteria we find in gum pockets in periodontal disease in the brain tissue of deceased Alzheimer patients. So that's pretty interesting. So I guess it's a bit of an empathy there. Well, I guess, I guess thinking about that is maybe, you know, we're talking about what's produced in the mouth getting wiped out in the in the stomach because it's because of its acidic low pH. But I guess yep. some stuff's going to happen in the mouth will get into the blood, right? And then be again. Hmm. Yeah, particularly if you're suffering from, you know, gum disease and there's bleeding gums and way, you know, easier ways to challenge. But I guess one of the other kind of caveats that you have to look at with with DNA sequencing is that when you do sequence a microbiome you're not only sequencing live DNA you can also sequence dead DNA so you know if um if a bacteria is making its way from the mouth into the stomach and it's coming up in your profile it doesn't mean that it's active because you you are just you are sequencing any DNA that's there. So a DNA sequencer doesn't distinguish between whether mm. you know, we're we're in the process as many other groups are of developing techniques that can tag dead DNA so that it's not sequenced. But again, okay. so that's another. Is it, mm. is it is it actually very good at quantifying? Because I remember at one stage when we were doing <clears throat> messenger RNA stuff, you could it was hard because you kept amplifying it. It was hard to actually mm. know the amount. So can you actually, are you looking at just the types of cells through their DNA or do you actually get a feel for how many, you know, you can say, oh, this is the main cell. Uh... Yeah. So when you're looking at it, you're looking at it in a, in a relative abundance. So you're looking at the, the oh, relative levels compared mm -hmm. to each other. Um, right. You can quantify it doing uh, totally. Uh, QPCR, so quantitative PCR, to get mm -hmm. an idea of total numbers of bacteria in the gut, and you can extrapolate from from there. So, but it, it's not quantifiable. Yeah, it's um, it's yeah. relative. Yeah. All right. Now, another thing, I, I something that came out with Ed is, what about the mechanisms? So, um, you know, diet. I, I know we, we're going to eventually get to talk about what about rugby players, what about cricketers, <laughs> but just the background. Do we know the mechanisms that diet and ex well exercise? start affects the gut microbiome so you know what is it about exercise do you know that then sends the message because we, we know you know things are very integrative nowadays you know we yeah sorry, we realize more that the muscles talking to the liver and the liver is talking to the fat and the fat's talking to the muscle and do we know how during exercise the message so ed said something you know maybe it's change of ph or oxygen saturation or or yeah, it would be things transit time. Or yeah, gut, mm -hmm. I was going to say gut transit time is a big one. So um, 
a lot of endurance athletes in particular, the gut transit time would be shortened. So then you don't have food doesn't have as much time in the small intestine to get the microbes to absorb nutrients out of it. Um, mood regulation is a big thing. Thing. Right. so the gut brain access so you get a release of endorphins so your gut brain access is affected right. by exercise um right. exercises anti is pro-inflammatory anti-inflammatory i always get those so with that again right. affects the the gut immune access you exercise also changes hormone regulation which is yeah, again yeah. controlled by the gut microbiome you know the gut microbes and i think when we're looking at it so we know diet completely affects the microbiome, but similar to diet, exercise is all profiting to the body. So it affects every, it affects your skin, it affects your, you know, it's affecting every body system that we know now. So the two, and and I think diet and exercise will always be intrinsically linked. It's going to be very difficult to separate the actual singular impact of diet and exercise on, on, uh, on the microbiome. And like if you take a population of from the general population to control, to completely control diet is very hard unless you put them in a, a, you know, a population into a controlled environment where you're monitoring and giving them every single item of food. Um, And what we found is that if you you get if you put people on an exercise plan, you will have some people that go on a strict diet because they're on an exercise plan. You'll have other people who will go on a reward based diet. So, OK, I've gone, I've just done two hours in the gym, so now I can go and eat four bars of chocolate. You know, so it's very hard to control people's reaction to, to mm-hmm. being put on. So it, I think that part of it is going to be quite difficult to tease apart. I guess it is hard, but I get people have done the classic studies. I mean, they're hard to do, and they're, they're, they're big. But where they've had like a control group that doesn't diet or or yeah, sorry, doesn't go on a uh, reduce. Well, more when they do like reduce calorie, when they try and work out what are the factors that result in weight loss. So they do reduced dietary intake, exercise, neither or both. You know, yeah, those are hard studies, but I guess that's more um, reducing your um, caloric, you know, balance. So either reducing the calories in or, or increasing the calories out. I guess it's, it's not necessarily what you're wanting to do with looking at your microbiome. It's more changes in the diet, isn't it? Um, yeah, no, we did do a study. Um, I mentioned the couch potatoes at the, the start. So oh, yeah. I, I it, it, it was a follow-on study from when we looked at rugby players. So we wanted to see what was diet or exercise having a bigger effect. So we, we attempted to do this in a, in a group of uh, non-athletes. Um, so there were couch potatoes, people who hadn't trained in the previous six months. And we put them on, um, uh, so we had three groups. So one group was taking um, an exercise plan that had the same energy expenditure as a typical couch to 5K would have. Um, and then we had a second group that did the same exercise plan, but added whey protein to their diet as a daily event. And then a third group that did no exercise, but took daily whey protein. And we wanted to see what was the impact of this. And we saw no change at all over a course of eight weeks in any of the groups, oh. except for the fact that the people that were exercising got fitter. Um, and lost mm-hmm. weight, but they didn't, their microbiome didn't change, their metabolome didn't change. So it kind of, like for us then eight weeks wasn't enough to implement oh. a change in the microbiome. 
so so the uh, the exercise didn't have the effect but even throwing all that weight protein at them you know like one specific sort of molecule or you know Class. Yeah. didn't affect the microbiome either. No, the only effect we saw, so so when we profiled it, we also we saw changes in lactobacillus phage, and which was kind of interesting to us. So what we did is we went back and sequenced the actual whey powder that we were giving these people and the same phage where it came up. So this the changes that we saw, so we saw changes in the virome, not the microbiome, so viral specific changes. Mm -hmm. And it, they were coming directly from the whey protein. So it was a transfer from um viruses that were in the whey that went that maintained itself in okay. in the gut microbiome of those taking whey. All right. So why don't we think about these different sports? So I know I think you've looked at cricketers, rugby players, and again, I guess as you said, the, the question will be, well, how much of that is the, the actual sport they're doing and how much is maybe yeah. the diet as well? But, um, yeah, why don't you tell us what you found looking at different sports and how you've looked at that? Yeah, so the first uh, opportunity we had to work with athletes was with the Irish rugby team. Um, and it was quite an interesting time that we got to look at them because it was pre-Rugby World Cup. So there was 40 athletes in a training camp at one time. So it was kind of a large end number, which was good for us. Um, and we took um, our control group was split into two. So we had a high BMI control group and a low BMI control group. And the reason we did this was because um, if people don't know the nature of a rugby team, um, there's two quite distinct types of players so you'll have forwards which is the pack or the scrum in rugby which would have a high bmi um, um and would be built for strength and then you'd have the back players which would have normal bmi and would be built for speed say if we just go so then we mm. wanted two control groups to remove bmi as a confounder um and so what we did is we compared the rugby players at uh, to this control group looking at diet looking at um blood biochemistry um the microbiome and the metabolome and what we saw is the rugby players had a significantly higher diversity in their microbiome compared to the control groups like the difference was phenomenal mm. um and then what we wanted to do was to kind of see what is driving this diversity. So how, what is making the, like, and as I said before, we, while we don't know what makes, what the profile of a healthy microbiome be, we know that mm -hmm. diversity is key. Diversity. So diversity in your microbiome is associated with good health conditions, good health. And if you mm -hmm. reduce diversity, um, you know, reduced diversity in your microbiome is associated with cancer, with irritable bowel syndrome, with inflammatory bowel disease. Many, many um, illnesses have been associated with reduced diversity in your microbiome. So healthy, di diverse microbes are good. What we did is so we had 188 pieces of metadata associated with this study. And we correlated every single one of these pieces of metadata with microbial diversity. And two things correlated with it. So again, it's not a causation, it's a correlation or an observation. So the two things that correlated were protein in the diet, so the levels of protein, and an enzyme called creatine kinase. So creatine kinase is an enzyme that's released from muscles post-exertion. Um, and what we found was damaging. that... 
damage, damage yeah. Um, yeah it's exactly. be yeah it's used in hospitals for people to see if people have had a heart attack um but what we found is a few papers that had looked at ultra marathon runners and had used creatine kinase to see the level of fitness or the level of exertion so we were using this as a proxy for fitness in our rugby players because when you looked at it the rugby players and if you look at a rugby match you'll see the damage to their muscles is mm -hmm. phenomenal like you know the impact that mm -hmm. they undergo and when we looked at our control groups we also saw that the fitter people in our control groups we had one person in our control group who'd just ran a marathon two people who played amateur ga which is a, a, an irish sport and and they were they Very also had high Gaelic football and hurling, yeah. oh, <laughs> excuse me. Um, and these people also had increased levels of creatine kinase. So we used it as a proxy for fitness. And what we found was that, so the higher the microbial diversity, the higher levels of creatine kinase in the blood and the higher levels of protein in your diet. So that's kind of when we mm. went into the follow-on study of the couch potatoes that I previously mentioned to see, could we mimic this? That's why we chose whey protein as the dietary change because we had seen in rugby players that protein was making the difference in in the um in the microbial so found the is it clear is it true that you said creating kinase correlated with the the higher diversity and yeah. separately the protein yeah uh intake was yeah um yeah so kilograms per day yeah Correlated with the the microbiome diversity. Yeah. Now, just yeah, creating kinase. I just need to check on something there. So, creating kinase, you know, is is indicates. I know you're using it for fitness, but you generally think about it for muscle damage. So, if you've started training, you'll have higher creating kinase when you do. So, if you go to the gym and you haven't done anything forever, yeah, and you get really sore two days later or whatever. Your creating kinase will be elevated, yeah. but but as you keep going and you're not doing as much muscle damage, it won't be as elevated. So I'm just wondering, you said you were using it for fitness, but isn't it a better indicator of actually muscle damage per se? So if you're doing yeah. like a cyclist, they wouldn't have creating kinase elevated, but they're very fit because they're not. But the rugby the players, muscle. yeah. Yeah, the rugby players, it, it was very specific for our rugby player population, I think. Um, yeah, because they're bashing into each other and the yeah. controls aren't. It was a so proxy. I'm just wondering, is it the fitness or is it the just yeah. the damage? We just use it as a proxy, and you know, and whether yeah. it was a, so. I guess when what the are the roadblock we were looking at here was trying to get a measure to compare elite athletes to a yeah. control group from from a, a fitness perspective, you know. So yeah. Like the the standard exercise measures, you can't like you can't like you know if you look at mm. a standard exercise questionnaire for the general population, it's how many you know steps did you take, how mm. many stairs did you do, which or how many hours of gardening do you yeah. do in a day, which you can't use in a an elite athlete population. Similar, you know what weight did you push today? Isn't so. I guess it was. Yeah, yeah. I get kind of we kind of came at it from a reverse angle in that we saw that creatine kinase was correlating to microbial yes. diversity and then reverse engineered it to see how can you know why would this be a thing yeah, so yeah, yeah. it is muscle damage it is released from muscles post exercise post damage so as i it said is, we, it, it was um, a simple proxy yeah yeah i guess i'm, I'm not trying to give you a hard time i'm trying, I'm trying oh, to no. just think no i'm just trying to think um that maybe what it is, is is the ones that do more damage 
to their muscles and therefore the creatine kinase is elevated maybe that is then stimulating like more diversity you know what i mean like it may not be the fitness it might be quite interesting that they've got more damage and this inflammation and all this stuff going on yeah and well actually the actually amazingly the uh, rugby players had a better inflammatory tone than the controls so we like you know we're going into this with the thing that you know, their inflammation markers are going to be really poor but they actually weren't they were you know they had a really good well you know what i'm thinking they probably pop ibuprofen like anything as well you know the anti yeah we did yeah we did have all the medication yeah we did have all the medication well uh, one of the very funny an anecdotes i tell when i'm presenting the rugby player stuff and it's a really nice story you know it's it's just a really nice piece probably one of my proudest pieces of work as a researcher but mm -hmm. there when you look at the um the plots and all the images that we look at there's always a very clear distinction between the rugby players and the controls no matter what way you look at it whether you're looking at it from a diet from a microbiome from bloods anything but there's always this rugby player the same person every single time who always goes with the controls no matter what way you look at it and when you kind of go back and look at this guy in particular when you look at his diet he had the poorest diet out of anyone like he had no fruit no veg it was all processed foods and mm. it kind of you know it, i kind of always pointed out uh, because you know it's like you can't outrun a poor diet no matter how okay. fit you are uh, your poor diet is always the the driver and it, well, maybe, it's anecdotal but it's like a nice story to tell people you know, you know what i was thinking i thought you were going to say it the other way rather than this diet i thought you're going to say he doesn't do much during the matches this, is, this, <laughs> well, this, this guy's journey as is his comedians in australia called roy and hg and they actually have a, a show now called bludging on the blind side so people in rugby would know bludging on the blind side yeah is you know sometimes a forge really tired They'll be on the the side there and not doing a whole lot. So I thought maybe this guy was bludgeoned. He was a forward, oh, but uh, yeah. he's an active. Forward. And I, I was wondering if the if the forwards actually had higher creating kinase in the backs because they're no. smashing into each other more. Okay. Yeah, we did look at that, and we were really wondering as well with the forwards separate from the backs. Mm. So you know, I guess you know. Uh, I would be a big sports nerd as well, a big sports fan. So I kind of really wanted to get into the depths of this, but there was yeah, no separation. It's, compl it's complicated, yeah. Because yeah. even with fitness, uh, you know, at one stage we were talking about the title to call it, and, and I said, oh, fitness is a very vague term because in some ways the backs have got a different type of fitness. You know, the forwards yeah. have to just keep kind of grinding and grinding. And yeah. even they're bashing into each other, it may not always be as hard as a back They've got a different type of, you know, they kind of stop start. So they're probably more like anaerobic sort of, you know, sprint. Type. Yeah. And, and then when they bash into each other, it's maybe higher forces because they're tackling, you know, like they're not sort of just pushing on each other like in the rucks and malls. And, hmm. I guess that's where our, where our kind of leaning towards the word mm. fitness was because we were kind of true when we were writing that paper up and going to publish mm. it, we were kind of saying, oh, exercise, exercise. But then when we went and did the follow on paper where we took the couch potatoes and put them on an exercise plan and saw no difference we're like well exercise isn't what's what matters here it's fitness so we kind of right. our hypothesis are is that it's like an athlete has a higher diversity in their microbiome because of a chronic adaptation to fitness a lifetime chronic, of being chronic. fit okay. you know okay. they're if they have a lifetime of fitness behind them and that's what's important so going on ah. a bad exercise program isn't enough to sustain ah, okay. diversity in your mic that's our hypothesis i mean we we haven't been able to to kind of you know 
translate it but we did do what we did so if you know from doing clinical trials or observational trials as you go past kind of six to eight weeks compliance levels kind of drop off it's very it's it's quite difficult so what we did is what we call a so an n of one study so where we followed um well it was actually an n of two so we followed two people who had started with very low levels of fitness but took on a six month training plan to take on so one was training to do um a triathlon and the other an olympic distance triathlon and the other one was training to do a marathon and so we took mm-hmm. weekly fetal sound so weekly weekly samples to look at the microbiome the metabolome and in real time followed the changes in their microbiome and what you kind of saw was it was really interesting was that as they got fitter their microbial diversity increased and mm-hmm. when they were at their fittest the microbial diversity was at its peak in both of these individuals and when they dropped back off their training plans the microbial diversity dropped back off as well and what we could see is like you there was times when some one of them was sick and the microbial diversity dropped and when they Mm. went back on their training plan so but that was over the course of six months and it took that long to see and you could see the metabolites associated with leanness so like phenylacetylglutamine that increased as these people got leaner and there were certain microbes so acromantia eusenophilia which would be associated with leanness that increased as they got fitter and this other uh, bacteria that has been shown to be increased in cyclists as well methanobrevibacteria smithii it's an archaeobacteria and as these these individuals um, increased in fitness so do these two bacteria so do these two microbes that's interesting yeah so that, that'd be a way to get to my thing about um is it is it bashing into each other or is it um fitness because the cyclists yeah. uh, are classic they're not doing any sort of eccentric they're not doing any lengthening contractions while they're so for people that don't know, like so running, um, you know, or walking down the stairs, you're actually having to break, you know, your fight gravity as you're as you're yep. actually landing. And that's eccentric where you're contracting the muscles lengthening. And that that is famous for doing well, famous. It's known to do muscle damage. Cycling is all concentric where it's just shortening. Yeah. So that'd be interesting to look at these long uh, these people that have cycled for many years. Yeah, there's a really yeah. Fire. Um a group, Lauren Peterson's group did a really interesting study where they looked at at cyclists and what they saw was that the cyclists had an increased level, had increased levels of Prevotella and the Methanobrevibacteria smithii that I've mentioned. And mm-hmm. Methano, like M. smithii is one of these microbes that I kind of have a bit of a fascination with. It, it just keeps popping up in, in, in studies and it has, it's an archaeobacteria, it has a huge genome, so very much bigger than um, a bacterial genome and I kind of like uh, there's not much work being done on there it's also quite high in people who suffer from anorexia nervosa and my kind of working hypothesis is that the large genome is there so it appears when people get fitter when people are training for longer in people who have low low you know not putting uh, not fueling their body correctly and my hypothesis is that it's there to compensate for the lack of diversity in the rest of the microbiome so its large genome is there so it can scavenge and energy harvest better and it's kind of just there to do to be a workhorse and right. and that's kind of one of those one of my pet microbes that I'd love to study further someday okay. so that's when you're not looking at just diversity you're looking at specific ones that yeah. you know have a particular okay 
Um, now, what about, I think you looked at uh, cricketers, is that right as well? Yeah, so we, yeah, so we looked at cricketers, um, the Irish cricket team, um, both the male and female cricket team, um, as they were traveling to, to different countries um, to play games and, or matches, sorry, I'm not a cricket connoisseur, so the terminology might be incorrect there. Um, what was, I guess what was interesting, why it was interesting to look at cricketers, especially Irish cricketers, is that the change in diet as you go from Ireland to Sri Lanka or the West Indies or, you know, the, it's quite a significant change in diet. And, but what we saw is that in players that reported deli belly or gastrointestinal distress, we saw this influx of antimicrobial resistance genes and virulence genes and the stability of their microbiome disappeared. So kind of when we were looking at it, if you had one incidence of gastrointestinal distress, your microbiome kind of remained stable and was fine and was able to bounce back. But if you had a second incidence, then you had this, so the antimicrobial resistance genes appeared, virulence genes appeared, and it persisted six weeks after they returned home. So I guess the idea there, which I know you touched on with um, Edward as well, is that we kind of suggested that in order to prevent this, you know, I guess the, the idea of doing research is so that you can help athletes and, and help them train and help, you know, improve their performance. So what we suggested was a prophylactic probiotic for when these athletes are traveling to try and prevent this gastrointestinal distress, present, prevent the influx of antimicrobial resistance and virulence genes. And unfortunately, we didn't get grant money to follow up. But anecdotally and hearing from the players and the management team, the following tour that they went on when they were taking these prophylactic probiotics, um, there was less incidence of GI distress and, you know, less days lost to training, less days lost to, to poor performance. Nice. So I guess it would be one thing, you know, I know the, the role of probiotics in sport is, is quite interesting, but if you're changing your diet, you're traveling to stress, then, then that, that does have, a, there's a role for probiotics there or prebiotics or fermented foods or, Okay, so you're saying it's a bit, did you just say it's a bit controversial or whatever? The Because that's one of the things I kept asking Ed was, was um, it was quite funny actually, because he kept talking about fermentable fiber. Yeah. Um, and how you need both, you know, so you need, yeah. so especially for the short chain fatty acids, you know, you need the fermentable fiber, but then the microbes to actually ferment to yeah. then get your short chain fatty acids. I kept focusing on the probiotics and what you eat and everything. And he kept saying, well, you actually need fiber as well. Yeah. So how does that fit? Um, yeah. So, so do they need to like take the probiotics and have more fiber, or is, it, or is that just if you're talking about the short chain fatty acids? Yes. You um, do. Like, I mean, you, obviously, you need to fuel your body. A probiotic, taking a probiotic, isn't going to give your body any more fuel than it already has. So, it is essential to always have diverse, healthy diet. A probiotic. So, in 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 each one of us, if we have a fully diverse diet that's healthy, has good fermentable foods, the right amount of fiber, then we should not need to take a probiotic because our bodies are able to do everything that we need. Mm -hmm. If you're going to hospital, take an antibiotic or traveling, then there is a potential role for for needing a a supplemental probiotic in those incidences. 
for athletes who are more prone to, you know, upper respiratory tract infections. I know there's been a lot of studies that have looked at the role of lactobacillus probiotics in reducing the incidence of upper respiratory tract infections in, in athletes. And what we found uh, I guess what we would suggest is for, for maybe if you're traveling and you're changing your diet and you're prone to GI distress, then there's a role for, for a probiotic there as well. Okay. And with the, so again, with the, we touched on earlier, trying to separate the, the exercise, just back to the, the um, cricketers, the exercise to the actual um, diet, how much, are you satisfied that it's the exercise? Because you know you said there was that guy that um, had the crappy diet, and his his, and you were saying there that you the exercise probably wasn't enough, or the fitness, to, yeah, to in, increase his um, diversity. So you need you think you need both, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's no point yeah. in having a healthy diet because it's all profiting. You 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 know you can't just focus on the gut microbiome as much as I would like to. You know, it, like it's you have to look at the your entire health of your your body. Like you know, we're mm. our bodies are hosts for these microbes, so we're there just to host them. So we need to fuel it correctly and keep it fit. So if you're not exercising, then your blood flow is changed. You know, your your transit time is changed. So everything works in concert with it all so one without the other isn't good yes and, and and of course we're focusing here on on the gut microbiome and we know of course that the diet and ex good a good diet and exercise is good for your cardiovascular health your mental health yes I'm assuming yeah. you're not putting everything down because there's quite a lot you see on twitter everything's sort of like gut microbiome sort of explains everything i'm assuming you're not saying that if our mental health our physical health, our heart health, our liver health, our everything comes down comes down to the microbiome or are you because it kind of no, feels like that, that sometimes. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and I, I and I know Edward said that as well, that a lot of the time there, there there's been this kind of overselling of the microbiome and and you know that people kind of have and it, it's not necessarily scientists, it could be media platforms, you know, that you you see the title of a research paper and you take it as oh this is going to happen you know but like a lot of the studies in the microbiome as Edward had said are in uh, mouse models which don't necessarily mm. translate to human models a lot of what we're looking at is observations and causation and we the field is definitely you know moving towards looking at more function now the gut you know without your gut microbiome you'd lose an awful lot of function. It's pivotally important to, to our health, um, you know, and you hear all it like, and I think you said that your mother, when you were younger, used to have the fermented mm. foods to be making. Yeah, but it mm. is true. We have all these old sayings like butterflies in your tummy and gut feeling. And I think for mm. a long time, people knew that there was a link between the gut and the brain. And, and this is where mm. the, the sayings come from. And now that's been proven. And, and it's how we can, use this knowledge to our advantage and to, and to keep us healthy but again you know without a healthy diet without exercise we can't have a healthy microbiome yeah and, and the thing is that we're inter integrated we are as, yes. a, as an organism integrated so it's, yes it's the way we used to think about oh let's think about the bone or let's think about the heart right? things are working together and it would make sense that the, you know you need your gut working well for other things yes. to work well just like you need your mental health to be working well for things yes to be working well. yeah you you can't yeah. work in ice you can't look at any of these things systems in isolation you know they're all a system of systems they all work together yeah now saying as you brought, brought up my mum which is which is nice <laughs> my aunt Thelma 
this is it's kind of funny because it's, it's n equals one you know I talk about my mum my aunt found that's not particularly scientific but I, I don't know if you know much about ulcerative colitis and and she's had a lot of problems with this and she all sorts of things didn't do a whole lot some of the ulcerative colitis had a, uh, drugs had a lot of side effects and didn't yeah. really help that much and she actually got onto this fermented food called kefir yeah I don't know if you know about kefir Anyway, yep. she said it tastes disgusting. I actually, she gave me some one stage. It it's very sour, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, she after six months, she found you know improvements in her ulcerative colitis, etc. So I wonder if um if you know she just swears by it now. But again, it's yep. n equals one. So you know, I'm not suggesting everyone with ulcerative colitis go out and get Aunt Thelma's, you know, kefir. Um, do you know is there much? And again, it's not your main research. Is there much uh, evidence? So again, this is like a pro, I think a probiotic. You know, is there much prebiotic? Yeah. Pro oh, it's a prebiotic. Yeah. Pre Why don't you explain that? I think I need an explanation. Yeah. Well, it's a, you see, I guess so. A probiotic is a live a microorganism that you ingest and it will um, confer its effect on the body. So at the moment, uh, there's only a few microbes that would have um, grass status. So that would be allowed to be involved in food. Um, so generally received as safe so EFSA and you know would have to give permission for them to be used so bifidobacteria lactobacillus would be the two main ones streptococcus these are the three main back you know currently like these are live you're saying live and they are prebiotic probiotics so That's probiotic crazy. is the act, an actual microbe. So then a prebiotic is an ingredient that you would give, that you would ingest in order to promote the growth of healthy bacteria. So oh, the I fermentable, see. so the fermentable fibers that Edward was talking about, they're prebiotics. And what yeah. a, a fermented food like kefir is, it's a combination. So it has live microbes, but it would also have the milk, you know, it's, a, it's in a food. So it kind of does a combination of both but a fermented food I mean fermented foods are around for millennia and each country that you go to has its own kosher mm. you know its own uh, yeah mm. you know its own indigenous fermented foods and I can't say I found one outside of wine that I like myself yet because they're quite sour in their taste right. uh, I don't think I can claim wine as a Sour fermented crow. food I, sauerkraut you know uh. kimchi kombuchas um, and um Paul so uh, Paul Cotter, who I would do an awful lot of the research on the athlete stuff, has a large research program looking at fermented foods from around the world and the microbes that they contain and the health benefits that they could potentially confer on humans. And um, we, I'm actually part of um, a large European-wide project called Domino, which is so we're going to do like a clinical trials where we feed people uh, fermented foods to actually quantify the health effects that fermented foods have so at the moment we know that they're healthy they do promote microbial diversity you know and so what we want to do is look at exactly the mechanism behind how these are working mm. uh, there so hasn't been much i don't i'm not aware of any study that has looked at the role of fermented food in athletes but i could be mistaken there mm -hmm. you know the the research kind of evolved so quickly and there's so many papers coming out it's hard to to keep on top of it but i think fermented foods will only be good for an athlete gut as well so we're just sort of playing catch up on um you know just like i guess chinese medicine and then the indigenous yeah. sort of medicines and things we're just sort of catching up to us it sort of feels kind of trendy that we're yeah, doing these exactly, yeah. you know kimchi and kombucha and whatever but it's i think been covid probably 
yeah, COVID kind of brought those phases, you know, the, these trends back up as well, because people were at home for a long time and everyone had sourdough starters and, you know, you had the time to do it and you had the time to feed your your sourdough and to feed your kefir grain and to your, you know, mind your kombuchas. And, you know, there, there's many stories of people getting babysitters for their sourdough starters when they go on holidays and stuff. But okay. yeah, I think, you know, maybe COVID did a reset and allowed us all to have time to do these things again. Um, and it, like, you know, it's so much to get the benefits of fermented foods, you need to get proper fermented foods and ones that you get in farmers markets and, and do at home are always going to be better than shop bought stuff. So there you go. Now, just to, I want to make sure I'm clear and, and people listening are clear on the pre and pro. So you're saying the probiotic, you're actually adding bacteria to your. Yeah, you're actually eating bacteria. And the prebiotic is, like you say, uh, it's in your diet. Like say yeah, digestible bacteria or whatever yeah. that, that you're actually eating for then the probiotics and the and your and your. Yeah, it's so it's providing. Yeah, it's providing fuel. Yeah, it's, so it's providing yeah. fuel for the microbes in your gut is what a prebiotic will do. Yeah. Oh, okay, learned that much. Okay, so um, other just in case we have the, the sports we've talked about, rugby, cricket. Have you looked at others? And also. Do they are they similar to each other, like the rugby players and the cricketers? No. Is yeah. their gut microbiome well, similar? No, like the cricketers, yeah. It would be quite like so the rugby players are quite a unique population um, we've just published a paper where we looked at um, a population of Ironman athletes and um, so they'll be looking at more endurance so what you look at like you know that would be an endurance sport and what we found mm -hmm. with those athletes is that the methanobrevibacteria was higher acromantia was higher um, uh, butyrate production increased uh, so uh, butyrate is a short chain fatty acid that um, mm -hmm. that Edward was speaking about. So short chain fatty acids will all uh, tend to be much higher in an athlete population. And like I guess the reasons behind that are make you know perfect sense. You know, short chain fatty acids harvest energy from from your diet. You know, they they are involved in skeletal muscle repair, in immune function. So it makes logical sense that these are going to be increased in in athlete populations as well um and we just kind of found that people you know butyrate was so the the longer you took to complete the Ironman then the more butyrate you had in your system the longer you took to to complete the Ironman the more methanobrevibacteria smithii that you had in your system so you know kind of these changes depended on the length of time that you were taking to do the race as well um and again that was a very small n number so you, when you're looking at athlete mm -hmm. populations as well it's very hard to get a large n number because these sports are so elite so what we're hoping to do now is to to use these the this small trial that we did in, in the triathlon and um expand it to a larger population to to look at more specific changes and like it's mad because we say, okay, the more fit, so the faster you finish the time, but you're still looking at somebody finishing an Ironman in nine hours versus 14 hours. Like you, it's you know, trying to distinguish fitness levels within an Ironman population seems alien to me. Like they're all so fit, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Um, um, we also looked at, um, so the Irish Olympic team, when they went to Rio, um, the Rio Olympics, um, but like when you, the Irish Olympic team would be quite small 
um so it wouldn't oh, be the whole team not just a particular sport you mean no it was the whole uh, olympic team okay. but as i said like an irish the irish olympic team wouldn't be significantly okay. large um mm. so what we did for that in order to be able to look at them we we kind of separated the sports according to their static and dynamic components so uh, the static sports would be more like the weightlifting and ones that didn't have as much you know energy expenditure and then dynamic sports and you did find differences so um more dynamic sports would have increases in uh, fecali bacterium, short chain fatty acid producing bacteria, whereas the static sports tended to have less differences. So we think more it's more endurance sports that need quick energy kind of consumption, quick things that tend to have the differences in the microbiome more so than than more static sports. Okay. Now I'm just wondering because um, you know that people are often interested in you know supplements and should I have more protein and things like that. Because you mentioned earlier about protein correlating with gut micro uh, diversity, micro diversity in um, mi microbiota diversity in the rugby players. Are you suggesting people should you know? I know you said earlier maybe you don't really need to take um, probiotics. Ooh. Prebiotics necessarily. Oh, hang yeah. on. Probiotics, probiotics necessarily, unless you maybe you're about to travel or something. What about the protein? What about other sort of? Um, yeah, I think it's just. And again, if we kind of refer back to Edward, he was saying that not we all none of us have eat enough fiber. You know, based on the daily recommended fiber intake. Mm. Not sure there's actually daily recommended protein intake but protein is very important as we know for you know muscle maintenance muscle recovery so if you are an athlete then you definitely need higher levels of protein in your diet and what we did see in in rugby players and, and other athletes is when you look at their metabolome the differences between the metabolites that their microbes are producing compared to the general population or non-athlete population are all often byproducts of muscle protein metabolism. Sorry, so you'd have things like um, TMAO, phenylacetylglutamine. So byproducts, you know, they're the the products that are taking the protein metabolism, and so that's why it would be important in order to maintain muscle mass then you, an athlete population would definitely need to have higher levels of protein and accessible protein. Yeah, I guess I guess I'll refer people back to Stu Phillips' um, podcast. So he's the big guy. I've done a whole bunch of uh, research on protein. And he actually yeah. saying he used to think people needed to supplement their protein, but most most athletes probably get enough because they eat so yeah. much more food and all that. So they can, they can go back to look at that. I wonder if I wonder, because if anything I see, I've been going to the gym here in Copenhagen, especially since I broke my clavicle and I've been riding the bike indoors. It's the number of people that are just buying these protein shakes. And, yeah. Because I, when I ride my bike, they've got all these vending machines and they all stop and get their protein shakes. It's a marketer um, stream, isn't it? Yeah. I almost wonder if if it's partly that the protein, I'm showing my, I'm not a big fan of protein supplements. So people will see why they watch Stu Phillips' um, podcast episode i almost wonder if the rugby players are actually eating so much protein it might be more than they need that that might then yeah turn on the microbiome you know what i mean like even if yeah it's more yeah than exactly they need, you know, it's like a, a chicken and an egg scenario and actually from speaking to so we would work closely with a lot of our athletes and and what we've interestingly what we've discovered is a lot of them are moving away from whey protein supplements and going back to whole milk 
as a muscle, you know, mm. as a post drink. So they're like when you're getting whey, you're just getting that single protein. Exactly. Like a whole where, mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're it's the, the movement back towards whole foods is definitely, you know, if even from you know, from athletes with mm. good sports nutritionists, right. I guess. Yeah. Actually, I want to clarify. So again, this is not Stu Phillips' podcast. He says you need more protein. Athletes need more protein. So it's exactly what you were saying. But he's basically saying they already get enough protein because yeah. they're eating more as well. Okay, so it all fits. Now, along those lines, I guess Mike Gleason, who was on the podcast, um, I don't know, about six or seven podcasts ago, talking about exercise and immunity, he sent through a question on Twitter. So it's, it's probably just a follow-up for what we've just been talking about. Can you recommend anything that athletes should be doing or eating now to improve their microbiome profile with likely health, performance, recovery, as well as aspects, uh, benefits that they are not likely doing already? So, hmm. Well, I, I think most elite athletes who will have sports nutritionists on their teams and I think most all of these athletes are definitely doing exactly what they should be doing if we kind of flip that question slightly into what should a an amateur athlete be doing more it's definitely taking on board enough fuel I think an awful lot of people particularly long distance runners endurance athletes they they don't fuel their body enough so I think people are afraid to increase calorie intake in case it slows them down or in case they put on weight but if you're not Mm. fueling the microbes in your gut enough then you're going to start you know you're not going to be able to harvest enough energy in order to do these long distance things so I think diversity in your diet absolutely is every recommendation I'd make all the time but as I said I think elite athletes are very aware of this it would be more the, the kind of next step down in athletes so diversity in your diet exercise recovery so rest days and um yeah you know if you are taking things like an antibiotic like traveling for stress then maybe look at adding in uh, a probiotic or increasing the levels of fermented foods of prebiotic foods in your diet just for the time that you're on these you shouldn't necessarily need them when you're outside of a medication cycle or a traveling cycle yeah so with the antibiotics we talked a bit about that with Ed as well um do they wipe out how does it even work so they are they wiping out i'm assuming not all your microbiome it would just be the no. bacteria i guess it depends on the antibiotic that you're looking at. So some antibiotics, so I guess antibiotics are untargeted. So they not only target the pathogenic bacteria that you're trying to wipe out, but they, you'll also get collateral damage. And so you will get some knockback on healthy bacteria that you want to keep around. But from so as part of the elder, the elderly study that we did, what we looked at there was that if you had one course of antibiotics your microbiome tended to to jump back to normality to its normal fairly quickly it was a subsequent course of antibiotics that meant that your and your your microbiome couldn't return to normal as quickly as as you'd like and that's just from a stability point of view so i think what's most important is if you are taking a course of antibiotics make sure your diet remains healthy and if your diet remains healthy then your microbiome should return to normal 
to its normal levels okay. with with fairly good ease. But like again, this is the whole thing of not taking unnecessary antibiotics. If you have a viral infection, don't take antibiotics. You know, um, and look at antibiotic alternatives. And there's a lot of work now in bacteriophage as an alternative to to antibiotics. So bacteriophage will specifically target the pathogenic bacteria in question and without having collateral damage. Okay. And then you're saying if you are, if you had to take, you know, sometimes you, you take antibiotics, ideally you wouldn't take them if necessary, but if you take antibiotics and you're still not any good, you know, you're still sick and they give you another course, you, you, would you suggest maybe under those circumstances? Yes. You'd take some probiotics. Yeah, um, I mean, antibiotics are absolutely essential in modern medicine like we need antibiotics i mean you know i think mm. that that's the thing as well you can't scare people into not taking antibiotics i no, mean no, no, they're no. you know they're absolutely essential for health but you know just be mindful of your microbes when you're taking an antibiotic and and mind them as well and you're saying if you have a second course so one course should be fine if you've got a nice once your diet going. remains yeah you know once your yes. diet remains but if you healthy. take a second course then maybe in might a probiotic yep. or something might be helpful and would that be you know, the old way, like we're talking about with my mum, sort of just having, you know, cranking up the yogurt or something, or, yeah. or is it, or like what I'm wondering about is, you know, you go to the chemist and half the aisle sometimes there's all yeah. these probiotics and you've got some in the fridge and some not in the fridge and, and whatever. Do you, do you necessarily need those or, or is, is yogurt, or is it too complicated? I don't know. You know, yeah, well, yogurt and kimchi instead. Yeah, like a fermented food is a really good way of supplementing your microbiome. Like the probiotics, what you want is a probiotic that has a scientific basis behind it. So an antibiotic that has scientific is an evidence-based probiotic is what you want if you're going to take a probiotic. Um, and then, yeah, so I think that's that's just the idea. But and, is, you is know, true, I guess... No, I said one that has, you know, an actual, you know, the, the yeah, actually scientific base. And the, they tend to be with the ones in the chemist. Yogurts will always be good for you as well. You know, I mean, you you have everything else in the yogurt that's good for your body. So, and a fermented food is, again, a, another whole food that will fuel your entire body as well. So I'm, I'm assuming these things are different. So what you get in your yogurt and what you get in your kimchi and what you get in your sauerkraut, and whatever they're not all going to be the same you, nope. to, you have to mix and match a bit and you wouldn't know what you sort of need right it wouldn't be like oh i've just had two courses of antibiotics so i need you know three tablespoons of yogurt yeah. and um, you know a, a teaspoon of kimchi i guess the medicine of the future i think will include so when you go well this is my kind of you know future forward looking well that when you go to your gp or when you go to you know into to hospital not only will you get your bloods taken you'll get your microbiome profiled um and then you can kind of tailor your like personalized medicine personalized nutrition you can tailor your medical plan based on what your microbiome profile is so if you're lacking some microbes then you you change your diet to to promote the growth of these you might need to take a probiotic to to supplement you know and we have all of this research going on to next generation probiotics so moving away from the lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria into to next generation or novel probiotic bacteria okay so i no, think that we are i say i know i just think that like it's going to become the way of the future to know what your microbiome profile is yeah right now, the thing I like to ask is, is 
see, I've done some studies and, and you know, we've looked at this thing called PGC1-alpha, which is a, a master regulator of mitochondrial biogenesis, for example. And then we kind of, it's like, oh, it's up. So we assume that there will be an increase in mitochondria later on. And, and the same, you might measure mu muscle protein synthesis using traces. And then it's up. So you go, oh, there must be an increase in muscle later on. But they don't always add up. You don't always, yeah. like the, the signal you measure doesn't always end up with the, the end product that you're after. Now, I'm wondering with microbiota. So if your microbiota uh, diversity is really high, say, oh, that, that will result in more healthy, et cetera. If it's low, does it always add up? You know what I mean? Have, have they, yeah. Does it always add up or can you assume? And it, so if you measured my gut microbiota, you'd say, oh, it's not very diverse. Therefore, you will boom, boom, boom. Then if you look in months down, do I actually have better health or worse health? Do you know? People yeah, don't we don't know, know enough. Better. Yes. Yeah. As I said, like, you know, the microbiome field isn't advanced enough yet to be able to, it's, you know, completely state those things yet. Getting there, a lot of work to be done. But yeah, you can't, you know, causality and projecting isn't isn't quite there yet. But yeah, like it's never, I guess yeah. what I, the thing is, is that the things that will, you know, the aspects of your life that will promote microbial diversity are good anyway. You know, you should be eating a healthy diet. You should be exercising. You know, we should yeah. be trying to limit our medication intake. So even if they don't improve your microbial diversity they have to be improving your health so it's not a bad thing to be doing these things that we think are you know improving our microbial diversity it's funny i was thinking earlier when you said um you know you don't have to worry about athletes serious athletes because they have dietitians and things I, I was thinking about you know your man who's bludging on the no, he's not he wasn't bludging on the blind side he was just eating a bad diet but, um, <laughs> I, I remember there was a guy i can't remember his name there was like there was an australian swimmer who won like four gold medals or something he was famous for like he'd celebrate by eating McDonald's and then the you know, next day getting Kentucky Fried Chicken and KFC or whatever. He was famous for having a crap diet, so there's always going to be exceptions. Yeah, but you know he's probably going to die of a heart attack later on because of you know coronary heart disease or something. Well, it's, isn't um, this other thing? Is our elite athletes actually how healthy is it to be that elite? You know, and like the more elite you get, like when we looked at the rugby players, they had increased levels of TMAO which tends to be a marker for cardiac. Yeah, uh, oh God, that is a good question, but it's oh, trying to worry, sorry. So it's a marker for cardiorespiratory cardio failure. Oh, um, okay. But these, the rugby players had really good cardiorespiratory health. And then you look at another study and people in Japan who eat an awful lot of fish and are very healthy have higher levels of TMAO. So because one is so a metabolite that's a biomarker for cardiorespiratory health isn't just because you have it high doesn't mean you're going to have a heart attack in in 10 years you know mm -hmm. just because you're an elite athlete doesn't mean you're healthy you know and this is the mm -hmm. you know and we yes. one of the studies that I, I one of the studies that I'd love to do if I got money is to look at the evolution of an elite athlete's microbiome so if you could kind of take um a young athletes in in adolescence who's entering a training academy and see how their microbiome evolves so is it a chick like so do they have a microbiome that puts them at an advantage or gives them a stepping stone that's going to help yeah. them become an elite athlete or is it the reverse is it that training changes their microbiome to make it more elite that's one of those mm. areas that i'd love to look at 
And that's an interesting thing. Earlier you said, I thought it sort of thought of, you know, how you have muscle memory, you know, like something you've done earlier and then you do it, start training later on. You, you that The idea is if you, you know, used to be a distance runner and then you stop, you start again 20 years later, you'll be better than if you hadn't, you know, it's the muscle memory business. One of there's also like a gut memory that, Mm. If you if your microbiota was was you know diverse or whatever early in life, and then you've had a crappy diet or something, and then you go back again, it's, it's almost that epigenetic sort of question. Yeah, you don't know about. I'm just wondering. Now, also, it made me think just then when you're talking about nature versus nurture. Do we know? Do we know is part of your gut microbiome you know passed on? I know um, Ed, Ed talked about vaginal um, delivery, childbirth, yeah. but. Is part of your gut microbiota, you know, sort of set for your body? Yeah, like, and then, yeah. There is um, a lot of work being done in Cork as well about, you know, transmission from mothers to babies and, and what's the, the, the transference there. Obviously, it's higher in vaginal births. But if you look at even cohabitation, so you'll actually people who cohabit and, you know, will will have more similar microbiomes than people who don't. In fact, yeah, you'll have a shared microbiome with your dog when you're living with them in 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 a oh, similar environment. Face. Yeah. Face, I guess. You know, so it, it like you know, identical twins will have distinct microbiomes. You know, and um, mm. so you're looking at the whole you know epigenetics versus environmental factors there. Oh, that's interesting. So, so if they yeah. if the identical twins living separately, in, you know separated at birth and things they still have some similarities i guess yeah you know there is a host kind of effect there yeah okay all right this is really interesting so i'm just wondering where do you see the field heading? it sounds like because it reminds me of sort of how you know some of the stuff we're looking at with in, in muscle and exercise you know like 15 20 years ago it sounds like when i ask where's the head uh, the field heading i guess it's just needs to mature right just need to do a lot of yeah. studies that haven't and been done yet and it, yeah, again, going back to Edward, like it's a lot of personalized, you know, so we hear the personalized nutrition, personalized medicine, personalized exercise plan. And it is because because we're all starting off from a unique starting point, you know, in that in that all our microbiomes are unique, then somebody's exercise plan isn't going to have the same impact as Mm-hmm. you know on one person as it's going to have on another and it's the same with personalized medicine you know somebody to like an antibiotic will work faster on one person and is that down to their microbiome is that down to their genetics and and, and mm-hmm. that's what I think it's going to very much be like it's great to do large-scale n of a thousand studies but when it comes down to it, it it's going to be very personalized I think yeah yeah all right and then just I, you mentioned you a study you did you did females and males so I guess I quite often like to ask is this sex do we know about sex differences and also do we know about with age you know changes in yeah so like you do tend so if you go to the age and what you see is um as you age going into the elderly populations you kind of start losing microbial diversity again but again, is that down to a lack of diversity in, in the diet? Because, you know, you, your diet kind of becomes, again, more streamlined, more narrow as you age. And is mm-hmm. it down again to the fact that um, you, you become less mobile as you age? And, exactly. and, and these are all mm-hmm. linked into each other. Um, male-female differences, again, like you have 10 studies that will say that there's a huge distinction between the male-female microbiome. And then you will have another 10 studies that say there is no difference. So there is no 
consensus as of yet, but you know, hormonal differences, everything, there has to be a difference in the microbiome, but whether it's a difference in how the microbiome functions or the actual profile of the microbiome is still ongoing. Okay, great. All right, so I'd like to finish up with um, some sort of key takeaway messages for people to, to get from this chat. What are a few takeaway messages you'd like people to remember? Uh, diversity matters. So diversity mm. in your microbes, diversity in your diet. Um, exercise matters, but not fad exercise programs. So you need to be fit rather than going on exercise plans. I think they're the kind of the two main things. The sort of chronic, when you say fit there, you, you mean like the chronic, you were talking about more chronic rather than just the short term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was when I first started thinking about the, you know, the muscle memory and the gut memory. Yeah. Maybe yeah. when you keep but that's going. The, I guess mm -hmm. that's kind of our, our working hypothesis is that athletes are fit, a lifetime of fitness rather than, you know, going out and starting a couch to 5k, you're not going to see immediate differences that you would see in uh, changing your diet immediately. You know, an exercise different takes longer to, to see than um, on, in your gut microbiome than a change in your diet would. That's true. Maybe you could go and look at, um, uh, people, you know, quite often people will follow up these these um, athletes, you know, years later. That'll be yeah. interesting to see people that were like Olympic athletes or serious endurance, you know, triathletes and whatever. Yeah. And then 20 years later, how do they compare to people that were never exercising? Okay, so lots, lots more work to be done. And uh, yeah. it's, I found it really interesting. I like having... It's funny how I sometimes have these themes. I had it with mitochondria, but I didn't actually plan them. But I think it's quite nice to have a bit of a theme that, that follows through with your talk and its chat as well. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Finn. Uh, any day that I get I to talk get about the my book. I said any day that I get to talk about my science is a good day in my book. So. Oh, yeah. Well, it looks pretty sunny behind you. Hopefully it'll be <laughs> sunny soon. It's an illusion, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, good on you. Thanks again for coming on. See you. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.